that is at the theater. Well, not at the theaters now. It's now it's on DVD. And um, I have not seen this movie yet. I was at my mom and dad yesterday and Cindy's, and they were actually, my sister was watching it with Titus. I saw about five minutes of this movie, and I thought that's just right right what I'm, where I'm going today in the message. And uh, the movie of Breakthrough, it's the story of John Smith, who back in 2015, when he was 14 years old, he and some friends are out on the ice, and they fall into the death waters there, on, in, in the frigid waters of death. And uh, in the process of trying to get out, his two friends get out, but he gets kicked in the face, and uh, as the story goes, he's, he's underwater for like 15 minutes in these frigid waters. Um, he gets pulled out of the water, and he's, I think he's without a pulse for 45 minutes. And he's in the hospital there, and they bring his mother in to the hospital. He's not, they're not getting any response. They bring her in to say goodbye to her son, John. She cannot handle it. And that's when she cries out in agony, Holy God, please send your Holy Spirit to save my son. And she just screams. And the, of course, the whole surrounding area in the hospital hears her scream. And literally within about five seconds, all of a sudden, there is a pulse on the screen. And the nurse cries out, hey, we have a pulse. And uh, the story proceeds from there. And I don't know the rest of the story. I haven't seen the movie, but I hear it's a good movie and I hear it's recommended. Um, here's the, where it kind of connects with uh, our message today. And uh, what we're going to talk about today and as we wrap up this series on Easter people today. Um, for the rest of his life, John will be known as this kid who was you got to say he was raised from the dead. I mean, you got to say that's kind of what happened in his life. You just don't, after 45 minutes without having a pulse, just come back to life. And Now, that's not normal, and God doesn't always do that, but God can do that, and if he wants to do that, he'll do that. And, and the reality of that story is he's going to be marked for the rest of his life by that moment of resurrection. And the reality is what we've talked about the last, this is our 12th week in this series, We've talked about this simple reality that we are to be marked as people of resurrection. That every day, our life is to be defined by the fact that, yes, we were resurrected. We were resurrected and brought back to life. And I don't know that we often get that imagery. This series, Easter People, we've been in it now. I said for, uh, really, this is the 11th sermon. We took off Father's Day. But it's people who live in the reality of the resurrection every single day. Not just one day a year, but every single day. It's about the fact that I have been resurrected. And I've loved this series. I really have. I've loved looking at some of the, uh, the practical implications of the deeper theological truths of the gospel. And I, I have really been drawn to this throughout the series is that we say we believe things and then oftentimes the way we look at things in Scripture or the way we live our life does not mirror what we say we believe. I'm just struck by that throughout this entire series. It's been very meaningful to me to study this. And I think part of that is that uh, I think the cross is greater and the empty tomb is grander than we can even imagine. And I think we sell the Bible short and I think we sell, we sell Christ short and his implications within our own life. Uh, how are we saved? We're saved when we believe and we receive, right? We talked about that. The cross is something to believe. The empty tomb is something to receive. I hope we can remember that as we go through life. But the reality is, is that how do I live out the gospel every day? How do I work out my own salvation? By remembering what I have believed and by remembering what I have received. 
And every day I got to remember, what have I believed? What, what, what are my beliefs? And what have I received uh, via the, the uh, empty tomb and via the gospel? Today, to wrap up this series, uh, we've been in, talking about freedom the last two Sundays, and I thought I'd be back there again today, but God led me to close the series out with this message called The Complete Gospel. And several years ago now, I was reading through 1 Corinthians 15, the passage we started out the series on, and it's the passage that most clearly defines for us what the gospel is. And uh, let's just read it here, and then I'm going to show you the complete gospel, something that, uh, that God has just pointed out to me and uh, stuck in my head the last several years. Now, I would remind you, brothers, and this is exactly where we started the series 11 weeks ago, 12 weeks ago, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me." We have the complete gospel here now. And, and just note there, that's where we started out the series. He went to the 500 witnesses and then it turned into today. There's 250 billion followers that say, people say they follow Christ. So, but in this passage, we have the most clearly defined uh, definition of what the gospel is. Three things. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And you've probably heard that. And maybe you've been drawn to this passage before and people have, have said that's the gospel. And, and a few years back now, God showed me there is a, a fourth truth, there is a fourth affirmation that completes the gospel here. And without it, the gospel just really isn't the gospel. And so what is the complete gospel? It's Christ died, was buried, rose again, and told others. That's that's the part that we just can't miss. And that Jesus Christ, when he vacated the empty tomb, he just, didn't just vacate the empty tomb, say the work is finished and go to heaven. No, he rolled the stone away from the door so that, not so he could get out, so we, we could see in. And he went on for really the next 40 days, the Bible tells us for the next 40 days, Jesus went on to tell others. He revealed himself, he reassured his followers, and he reinforced the gospel for the next 40 days. Acts 1-3, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, his followers, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, when he resurrected, he made sure that you and I knew. He made sure that the world knew that Christ, that he had resurrected and that that tomb was empty. And that really is our big idea today. The stone wasn't rolled away from the tomb so Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in. He didn't need to move that stone. He could have got out of there without moving the stone, but we needed to be able to see into that tomb and say, this tomb is empty. And we're going to talk about that today, the implications of that today. The, the reality is, and what we're going to see today, we're going to look at a story today, that a month or two before Jesus goes to the cross and dies and resurrects, before the whole thing unfolds, about a month or two before, Jesus points his followers to the other side of the cross, to an empty tomb. He points them to resurrection. I think that Jesus was just 
he, when, when he knew he'd be in the grave for three days. And when he was in the grave for three days, he didn't want his followers to be in fear, anguish, and limbo. But he wanted them to have hope over those three days. And why didn't they have hope over those three days? Because they lost sight of the resurrection. In fact, there's a, a simple reality check for us. When we lose sight of the resurrection, things in our life can grow very dark. When we lose sight of the resurrection, things in our life can grow extremely dark. So we need to know the importance of being a people of the resurrection every single day. So a story today pointing to the resurrection of Christ. We find it in John chapter 11. You'll probably recognize the story. Remember the story. You've, I'm sure you've heard it. The story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and uh, Jesus and his followers. So let's we're going to do this morning is walk through the story, kind of tell the story, make a few comments here and there, and then we're going to get to the end and we're going to give you some of the ultimate truths we need to be aware of to live as people of the resurrection every single day. John chapter 11, verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, to appreciate the story, you have to understand the relationship between Mary and Martha and Jesus and Lazarus. The Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're three siblings. And Jesus often would stay in their home. And Jesus has watched, or they've watched Jesus for three years heal all kinds of people. So the, the moment that their brother is sick and he's in trouble, and they know he's in trouble, they call for Jesus because clearly Jesus can save their brother, right? He, he saved so many people. Lazarus is his good friend. He'll certainly save Jesus. And so you can see they have an agenda immediately in this story, and that's to get to Jesus. Now, the reality is that God has an agenda in this story as well, and it's down there in verse 4, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. That is God's agenda in this story. In fact, that's God's agenda in your life. We need to know that. God's agenda, regardless of our circumstances, never changes. It is always to bring himself glory. And, and let me tell you, when God uses your life to bring himself glory, your life can find no higher pinnacle, no greater satisfaction or joy than God to glorify himself through you. Just always keep that in mind. So that's what he's up to in the story. That's what he's up to in the lives of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's going to bring himself glory. Verses 5 and 6, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed to their home. Okay, how many know that's not how the story goes? That's not the text. That's not exact. Actually, this is what it really says that happened. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And uh, it's just, a, just, a, just one of the most odd things. Say it again, one of the most odd things in Scripture. I mean, think about that. One of the most hard to process statements in the Bible. Jesus loved them, so he took his time and left them waiting in their anxiety. I, I just, just for a minute, try that in any of your significant relationships, you know. I really love you, I really care about you, but... It's going to take my time while you fret and you worry, even though I could help you out. The reality is, I think 
though Jesus' words seem uncaring, his actions seem inconsiderate, I think this is how God deals with us sometimes. And he doesn't always show up when we want him to or how we want him to. And sometimes we don't really understand what God is up to. And uh, we get kind of frustrated with God. Here's the reality. We, we talked in this series, right? We are a new creation. We, we, our old man has died and passed away. We are a new creation with a new heart. And my heart has God's desires. Do you know that you really do? Your greatest desire is to bring God glory. That's when you're most fulfilled. You, you just are. And, and so we all want to bring God glory, but sometimes it's tough. Sometimes in the moment we get our eyes off of uh, the, God's agenda and we, we get our eyes off of the spirit. We get our minds set on the flesh and our circumstances dictate our feelings and our response. We lose sight of the fact that, you know, I really want God to bring me glory regardless of what happens in my life. And let's be honest, if we were Mary and Martha, if we're in their sandals, we have to, you got to realize they have watched him literally heal people for the last two years, all kinds of people. And, and what's the issue here is that Jesus did not take them serious. They said, hey, this is serious. You got to get here. Lazarus is sick. He's going to die. And Jesus just took his time and did not take them serious. And they're struggling with that. Sometimes we don't like how God shows up in our life, really. Sometimes we don't like God's intervention or his lack of intervention in our own life, in our own circumstances. It's like, where are you? So let's continue with the story here, uh, a resurrection story. Jesus waits, Lazarus dies, and then sisters, they will mourn. So um, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that, you, that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Very significant statement of what she knows and believes about eternal life there. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the the world. So let's meet Martha for a moment. Can we meet Martha for a moment? Compared to Mary, Martha is a bit more analytical and direct. And, and maybe you understand the most uh, famous story between Mary and Martha, remember? They're sisters. And one time Jesus is passing through town. He's, he's doing ministry and he stops and stays with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in their house. And he begins to do Bible study. And all the people gather around to hear him teach the word. And Mary is there clinging to every word that he says. And Martha is up. What's Martha doing? She's up there frantically trying to serve, be the good hostess, you know. Hey, it's Bible study. It's small group. You have to have food if you have a small group, right? So she's taking care of the food. And uh, after a while, she gets pretty frustrated. Because there is Mary not lending her a hand, but giving Jesus her ear and she doesn't like that and she's like hey and she calls out Mary in front of everyone you know that you need to be helping me here I'm doing it all myself in fact to be honest she doesn't really call out Mary she really calls out Jesus she calls out Jesus for not calling out Mary Jesus why don't you tell Mary she's supposed to be helping me and you know Jesus is just classic Jesus in that moment he's very calm he, he just kind of says to Mary or to, Mar to Martha, hey, you know what, Mary? Mary's chosen the better thing. Mary understands something, that before you can do for me, you have to learn to be with me. 
and she was being with him. And then he just kind of calms Martha down. Remember, remember what he said? In fact, what were his words to Martha? I don't know if I have them on the screen. Yeah, I do. Uh, no, I don't. Here's, here's what he says to her. He says, Martha, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. You know, before we can do for Christ, we have to learn to be with Christ. And so in this story, now let's transpose to where we are in this story. That story, Martha was kind of upset with Jesus. In this story, Mary is kind of upset with Jesus. She's a little more hurt on a more personal level. So, so Mary, I mean, compared to Mary, Martha's more analytical and direct analyzes the situation, she's direct, she states her beliefs, and she's real firm. She is hurting, but her face seems to be a little stronger than Mary's. Now, I say seems because I don't know that that's really accurate, but in this instance, it looks like her faith is a little bit stronger. In fact, note what she says. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That is some pretty strong faith. Even now I know, even though I am hurting, I know. I know you're God. I know you're supreme. I know you're trustworthy. I know you're faithful. She has this incredible faith. Verse 26 gives us the question that all of us uh, have to face in our times of hardship and, and, and suffering that Jesus asks us the question, do you believe? Do you believe? It's easy to believe when things are going great in life, but when things aren't going great in life, we get the question, do you, do you believe? And, and Martha, she affirms, before she's even asked, before Jesus asks her, do you believe? She affirms, yeah, I know. I know who you are. I know what you can do. My faith is firm. My faith is secure. I'm hurting, but my faith is secure. Note that her, her belief has a hope. A hope rooted in a future resurrection. Now, what's interesting in Martha's words is what she says here. The verb tense, notice this. You are the Christ who is coming into the world. And what does that mean, who is coming into the world? Some translations say, who cometh into the world. She didn't say, well, you came into the world. You were born, you know, 33 years ago. You came into the world. No, you are coming. And she's just simply speaking to the fact that he has come for eternal reasons. He didn't come to save her brother from dying a physical death, he's going to eventually die anyway. She knows he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to bring eternal future resurrection. She understands that. That's pretty powerful. Now, I'm not saying she understands the entire gospel. She understands the cross and everything that's coming. No, she doesn't understand how it all works. She just knows that the Messiah comes to make us right, to have a future eternal relationship with the Father. And she said that in the text. This is what she believes. And so here, you are the son of God who is coming, meaning you are proactively coming into people's lives, trying to reach people for the kingdom, trying to reach people for eternity, trying to reach people for the Father. So Martha can contrast and see the difference between her brother dying a physical death and the eternal life that Jesus came to bring to all men. Okay, let's switch gears here then. Let's go on in the story and let's talk a little bit about Mary, let's meet Mary a moment. Okay, as I said, Mary seems to be hurt more deeply and personally than Martha. She's taken this one a little bit harder. Now, let me just say that the differences between Mary and Martha, they're really just their unique personalities. God makes us all unique as people with personalities and temperaments. And so that's the reality. One's not more spiritual than the other. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our moments. We all have our times. We're all created and designed uniquely. 
And so she, in this instance, she is hurt on a more deeply and personal level. So Jesus has to specifically ask for her or call for her. John 11, she, Martha, went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. I think this is so beautiful the way that Jesus interacts with Mary. I think he interacts with us in the same way. You know what he doesn't do with Mary is that he waits on Mary. He doesn't force himself into her space. He lets her grieve. He lets her hurt. He understands where she's at. He gets it. And he just takes his time. He calls for her and he waits until she's ready to come to him. And God does that with us as well. Jesus, you know, Christ here, he, he lets us know he's here. I'm here when you're hurting, I'm here. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us and comforts us and says, I'm here. But it's not like he says, hey, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't act that way. You shouldn't be upset. Where's your faith? Where's your trust? Get your act together. No, he just lets us hurt, lets us process those emotions. In fact, I I think what Jesus does is beautiful. It's in the text here. Two phrases describe Jesus that I think is what he does in our life. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When we're going through difficulties, he's deeply moved and greatly troubled. He goes through them with us. Can't understand how that works, but that's just how it works. And he knows from the cross what it feels like to be in our situation, to be in our circumstances. He's deeply moved and he's greatly troubled the 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 greater question in this story always comes out why does he cry because then he cries and it's like why does he weep because here's the reality here's jesus he knows in what (laughs) you know like five minutes we're gonna have this great party and it's gonna be a celebration and lazarus is gonna come out of that grave and they're all just gonna be like exploding with joy and it's like so why does he take the time why does he just get the show on the road get it done with why does he take the time to cry? And I think there's three reasons why we, we ask why Jesus cried. Three reasons I think are evident here. One, he shares in the suffering of others. He's just, he's entering into their pain. He hurts for them and with them. When he sees them crying, he can't help but cry. We're told in Romans 12, the weep with those who weep. That's just, that's the Holy Spirit engaged, working in us. We just will hurt with those who hurt. That's the reality. Second reason is that uh, I think he sees the stark reality of sin and death. I think you see death here and you see all the emotions, but he can see beyond it. He can see much deeper. He can see the roots of all this. He can even see back to the Garden of Eden. He he, He knows the reality of sin, the destructive force of sin. He knows those people that are going to die and not know him, that aren't going to be raised to eternal life, those that are going to die eternal death separated from the Father. And so I think he looks at all that and 
it causes him to cry. And then thirdly, I think he cries because I think he begins to feel the weight of his own suffering. We didn't read the verses, but, but earlier in the story, back when Jesus says, okay, let's go to Jerusalem. You know, he says, he waits a couple of days, then he says to everybody, okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem now. And all of the disciples are like, time out, Jesus. Don't you remember? They tried to stone you once. They've, they're trying to kill you. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm emphatically going to go. And then it even says this, you know, Thomas, the doubting one, the pessimistic one, in his usual pessimistic tone, when Jesus says, no, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And Thomas then, and we, we can criticize him lots of times for his faith, but he has stronger faith than we may realize. Thomas, and I'm paraphrasing here, Thomas says, well, okay, let's go die with him. <laughs> you know, what a great attitude. But, but, I mean, hey, hey, if he's going to die, we're going to go die with him. And they all take off. For Jerusalem. So even in a story that points to his resurrection, this story is also hinting at his death. And he has done that for the last three, two or three years in his ministry. He repeatedly told them that if you tear down the temple, I will do what? I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're all like, you're, you're a whacked out crazy guy. No, he was just God who just came on a mission to offer his life on the cross and resurrect in three days. He was the true temple. And so he cries. And finally, that takes us to the climax of the story, John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. <laughs> Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's going to stink. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And we come to the climax of this story. And I don't think that Lazarus came out and had to do any stretching. I don't think he had to get his eyes in focus. No, I just think he was instantly back to who he was. What an amazing, what an amazing, an amazing story. And can you just imagine in that moment, can you imagine the sorrow that is swallowed up in joy? I mean, just instantly. And you know what that is a picture of? What is that a picture of? The swallow, the sorrow that is instantly swallowed up in joy. It's a picture of what? Somebody tell me. Somebody knows. It's a picture of the moment we are resurrected to heaven and immediately all the weight of this world, all the sorrow, all the pain, just swallowed up in joy. We won't even, it's just, I, I don't think we can imagine what's coming, how incredible it will be to leave behind the weight of our fleshly, physical body that struggles so much and the brokenness of this world. It's a glimpse of heaven. It's a glimpse of that moment. You see, this story points to the resurrection of Christ, but it looks beyond that to our own resurrection as well, a future resurrection that should bring us uh, present-day joy. There's a side note in this story as well. 
there's a beautiful thing in this story. You know, sometimes we, we wonder, what does it look like when we die? And I saw a booklet one time from hospice. They give out a booklet on, you know, what happens when you go through the death process. And, um, <clears throat> but what, what happens when we die? And sometimes it can be a little bit uncertain, a little scary. And the Bible takes all the fear out of dying. The Bible basically says this, death is falling asleep and then waking up in God's presence. That's what the Bible is. Repeatedly, the Bible talks about when we die, it's like we fell asleep. And Jesus said that in the text here. He said earlier, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. They didn't understand that that Jesus meant he was dead. He was dead, but he had fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And the reality is, Paul talks about the same language. He talks about death as falling asleep. It's not a scary thing. In fact, Paul also says this, that absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the reality is, is that I fall asleep and then I wake up and I'm in God's presence. And I heard a plausible uh, explanation of this one time. Our problem is we look at everything from our world. We don't look at things through the eyes of eternity. And somehow, what if somehow in eternity we die and we go to sleep and we wake up all of us wake up at the same time in God's presence. <laughs> I mean, what, it's, we, we look at things through our world, not through eternity. There's, there's a time difference in eternity that doesn't exist here on earth. I don't know what it looks like. All I know is that death isn't a scary thing. We die and we wake up and we're in God's presence. And how that works is actually beyond all of our pay grade, I believe, Right? <laughs> I don't think any of us can figure out how it works, but just that it works. So here are today's ultimate lessons. Let's walk through the story. Hey, I, just, I think I got four simple lessons here, and I got a great verse to show you at the end. Jesus uses Lazarus to tell others about his soon, own soon-to-be resurrection. That's the climate, the, the ultimate lesson in this story. Jesus is using Lazarus to tell others about his own soon-to-be resurrection. That's the... Uh, uh, okay, today's ultimate lessons. I got a couple slides out of place here. But just understand that this is about two months again before the crucifixion and the resurrection and the whole gospel narrative unfolds before Passion Week. And what, what Jesus is doing here, what God is doing here is about two months before the, the, the event takes place, he's pointing people to the other side of the cross, pointing them to the resurrection, using the story of Lazarus to tell others in advance what was going to happen. And so that's the reality. Today's ultimate lessons, here they are. Number one, the single greatest point of this story is the upcoming resurrection of Christ. That's the single greatest point of this story. Yes, we can read the story and we can learn some lessons about being patient and waiting on God's timing and trusting God in our pain, but always remember this story and the Bible is not about us. Single greatest issue I think that exists in the church today is we make the Bible too much about us. The story is not about you and me. It is about Jesus the Christ. It is about his resurrection. Here's the beautiful thing. When you get Jesus in the right place, when you get Christ in the right place, when you get the gospel in the right place and his story in the right place, your life will just naturally fall into place the way it's supposed to. But if we make the Bible about us, we can end up very, very frustrated at times so just know that second greatest ultimate lesson in the story easter people people of the resurrection always have hope 
We always have hope and we have to know the resurrection is important because it is vital to the existence of our faith and our hope. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We started here, looked at the complete gospel. Let's go to verse 12. Read a handful of verses here. Look at the connection between the resurrection and our hope and our faith. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. Remember in this story we talked about being in Christ or being in Adam. I can be in Christ, but if Christ didn't resurrect, if Christ isn't going to go on for eternal life, then I'm not either. Without the resurrection, our faith is a waste of time. We might as well shut the doors on all the churches and just stay home on Sunday. Burn our Bibles. Everything in the scriptures, it all hinges on the resurrection and the fact that Christ really did come out of that grave. The truth is, Christ did come out of that grave. Again, not so that he could get out, but so that we could see in. Without the resurrection, our whole belief system crumbles. But with the resurrection, our, our belief system takes on incredible hope. Easter people have an incredible hope every day. If Christ walked out of the grave, that means he conquered death. If Christ walked out of the grave, that means that he conquered sin. If Christ walked out of the grave, that means that he's alive. If Christ walked out of the grave, that means that he walked into your heart, into your life and my life as a believer. If Christ walked out of the grave, that means the whole gospel is indeed true. If Christ didn't walk out of the grave, it means none of the gospel is true. If Christ walked out of the grave, in the end, we are filled with this incredible hope. Verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most people to be pitied. Why? Because the hope of this life is so limited. The hope of this life is a wish or a dream. Oh, I hope. Oh, I hope I get that promotion or I hope I can take my family to Disney World someday or I, I hope, you know, that I have enough for retirement and that's the hope of this world and, and the hope in God's economy and God's eternity is a guarantee. The blessed hope is a guarantee, yes, because Christ resurrected from the grave. One day we are going to go to heaven and be with him for all of eternity. Oh, hallelujah. There's no limits to heaven's hope and the bottom line is if Christ walked out of that grave that means we will as well and we are no longer dead in our sins we are no longer dead in the grave the resurrection also number three is the answer the, the resurrection number three is the answer to every crisis and life question we will face think about it is there a bigger crisis in life or a bigger question in life than death that's the biggest question we face and the resurrection answers that question. And the resurrection will answer everything we will face in life. Every crisis, every question. Think about it in three ways. Think about this. Uh, 
what has God left in the past? Think about the resurrection. It deals with what, what, what God has left in the past. It says that we, our old man was crucified with Christ. That means when I went into the grave, and this one man went into the grave and a different man came out of the grave. The old sinful man went in the grave. The new, the new creation in Christ came out of the grave. And there were some things that were left in the grave. The power of sin, my shame, my guilt, my condemnation. It was all left in the grave. It's incredible. We understand this when we think about our future heavenly resurrection. We think one day I'm going to die, right? And I'm going to go to heaven and get get a brand new body and be a brand new person. But that happened to you spiritually already. You spiritually were crucified with Christ. You came out of that grave a brand new person. You are not the same person you were before you were saved. We need to know that. We need to know that. We've talked about that throughout this series. Sin is the parasite that lives in me, but it it is not me. I am a new creation in Christ. And here's the reality, and this is where it fits in. It's the battles again in our mind where I set my mind on the spirit or the flesh. And so sometimes I, I forget all the stuff that was left in the grave. I forget the power of sin and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that was all left in the grave. I forget and I act like they weren't and I'm still struggling with those, carrying them with me through life. Second question the, 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 that, is, that is answered for us is what God is doing right now in the present. Because you see, the old man died, but the new man came out of the grave. Our new man is alive. We're not only crucified with Christ, we are resurrected with Christ And so when Christ walked out of the grave, he walked into our life. He made us alive. He quickened our spirit. He gave us his spirit. Christ is my life. What is God doing in my life right now? What have I received from the gospel? Every day I have the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit all because of the resurrection. The resurrection answers every crisis, every question we will face, even what is God doing right now. In fact, think about this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know That's your identity now too. You are defined by the resurrection. You are defined by the life of Christ. He is your identity. And then the third question we ask, our new man is alive. And then uh, third, C, what we have to look forward to in the future. And the resurrection answers that, undoubtedly answers that, the fully glorified man I will one day be. You see, the reality is God left something in the past, he is doing something in the present, and he has promised us something in the future, and it's all hinging on what? The resurrection that Christ walked out of that grave. Fourth ultimate truth. People of the resurrection love others enough to share the complete gospel to share the complete gospel. And I looked at the story and I thought about in this story how Jesus was misunderstood. How, 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 Jesus, how, how they were hurt by Jesus. Jesus hurt them. They were misunderstood. And I thought about some of those things. And I wonder, are we willing sometimes? Because we care enough about people to say the things that maybe, maybe we'll be misunderstood. Maybe we'll be hurt. Maybe we'll be rejected. But we speak the truth because we know there are those that need to hear the truth. Even when Jesus was in the grave for three days, he was misunderstood. It's like, oh, we're, we were following this guy and he's gone and, 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 and he was, are we willing 
at times to be misunderstood, to be rejected, to be hurt because there are people that need to know the truth. Sometimes we are afraid to speak up and to tell others the truth and to complete the gospel because we're afraid of those things. How people will take our words, how they will respond to us, how they will accept us. We need to tell them. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians again, uh, chapter 5, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Behold, I'm laying in Zion. Oh, okay. <laughs> we read it here. For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And the love of Christ compels us to go out and to speak the truth. Those are the ultimate truths of this story. If we love people enough, we will complete the gospel for them. We will tell them the tomb is empty. So what did we learn today? Um, what did we learn today? Today's big idea. The stone wasn't rolled from the tomb so Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in. And we learned that Jesus is pointing us to the resurrection to prepare us for our times of pain and suffering. That's the answer to the struggles in this life, the resurrection. And also we learned that Easter people always have hope. And we learned that the resurrection is the answer to every crisis and every life question we will face. And yes, that Easter people love others enough to share the complete gospel. I want to leave you with one last passage and I just want to give you one last illustration, I guess, this morning of the gospel and the power of the gospel. I think I might have got these scriptures messed up here. Um, so I'm going to click ahead and see if I can find, I think I put them in the wrong spot. Um, 1 Peter 2. I want you to think about something in a minute here. So... Um, First Peter 2 talks about Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. There's a spiritual building. We can see it as a literal building, and I want to just draw this picture. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, Here's the picture I want you to see. Um, there's this spiritual building that God is building and Christ is the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone of a building? It's the most significant part of the building. It's everything is built off of the cornerstone. It's the central uh, stone that everything is ordered around and built on and Christ is the chief cornerstone. But, but think about this, that if we had maybe a, maybe not the literal building, but we were making like a model of this building and we wanted to label that cornerstone um, and we were to kind of look at it in a more figurative sense. It says here that this cornerstone, number one, um, 
It's a rock of offense. You know what's the most offensive part of the gospel? What's the most offensive part of the gospel? Is the cross the most offensive part of the gospel? That somebody came down and died and was a great example of love? A lot of people look at the cross and say, well, Jesus was just entering our suffering and he was a great sacrificial gift of love and that's not very offensive to people. But the empty tomb that says, no, Jesus came to die to defeat sin and to, to defeat death. And, and, and he died a death to do something you couldn't do for yourself. That's when people get offended. Tell me I'm a sinner. Tell me I'm not good enough. Tell me I can't do it on my own. And then people get offended. So, so people, people don't struggle with certain parts of the gospel, but certain parts of the gospel they do. And so you look at the gospel and you say, what offends them the most? It's this Christ resurrected to defeat sin and to defeat hell. And, and then you go on and you say, um, what part of the gospel is usually the most rejected? Probably the resurrection. A lot of people believe in it, but there are a lot more people that believe, okay, Christ was a good teacher and there's many more that believe Christ. No, Christ really died. He did. But I don't know if he rose from the grave. They don't go that far. And the one part of the gospel that is most commonly rejected probably is the resurrection, the most important part. And, and I almost think the, the idea here is you look at the cornerstone of our faith, of all our doctrines, of all our beliefs in the gospel of, of Christ. The cornerstone is the resurrection. Take away the resurrection, everything crumbles. Everything falls. The resurrection is that important to our gospel and our faith. And here's the imagery I want to leave you with. So, remember, Christ rolled the stone away from the door so we, not so we could get out, but so that he could see in. He rolled the stone away from the door. And you know what he did with that stone? He made it. The cornerstone. And our whole faith is built on Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave. Just think about that. The stone that is the cornerstone is the same stone that was rolled away from the empty tomb. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. That no matter what we go through, we have hope. We have hope because we came out of that grave. We came out of that grave a new person and we left some stuff in there. We're supposed to have left some stuff in there. Help us remember to, to, to think in the spirit and to, and to realize, oh, all the guilt, all the shame, all the condemnation, all the struggle with sin, all that, that's, that's to be in the grave. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have holy desires to bring you glory. And what you're doing right now in our life, every day we get up, we have the life of Christ in us. We have the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're held by the Father. And every day, you are walking through this world with us, empowering us to live our life for you. And then the ultimate hope we have is that one day we're going to shed these fleshly, broken down bodies leave a broken world and we're going to go to heaven into glory forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, we give you all the praise. And everyone said, amen.